Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. And this is an episode. Actually, it's our 100th episode. Okay, it's not, but it's our 100th, like, real episode. It's our 100th classic good one long-form interview. Our 100th C-G-O-L-I. Glowy. So before I continue, let me just say thank you for listening. Uh, seriously, I, I created this podcast to have the conversations about comedy that I always wanted to hear, and a small part of me was worried no one else would want to hear them. I try to create a space I would like to spend time in, so thank you, thank you, thank you for dropping by. To mark the occasion, I, I wanted a guest that felt significant, and I succeeded. My friend and yours, John Mulaney. Besides the fact that this appearance will tie John with Roy Wood Jr. for the most total appearances on this podcast with three, I'm not sure if this podcast could exist without John. Five years ago, I interviewed John for Vulture. It was the first real interview he did after Mulaney, his short-lived Fox sitcom, very publicly faltered. And it was right before the release of his second-hour special, The Comeback Kid. John was surprisingly candid about its failing and what he learned from it. And a lot of people ended up reading the interview. So besides helping ignite my passion for interviewing, that interview proved to earn me a lot of trust in the comedy community, trust that has allowed me to have the conversations about the inner workings of joke writing that previously was not for public consumption. Since then, John has become so freaking successful it's nuts. He's hosted SNL three times. He had an unbelievable, improbable run on Broadway with Oh Hello!, he sold out seven nights at Radio City Music Hall on his Kid Gorgeous tour, with him going on to win an Emmy for the special he filmed one of those nights. With all this industry clout, what did John decide to do? Well, of course, film a throwback children's musical variety show for Netflix called John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. For those who haven't seen it, I can only describe this sort of tribute to shows like Sesame Street, 3 to one Contact, and Free to Be You and Me with a metaphor. Chefs often put dishes on their menus that, that don't just try to recreate the taste of something they ate as a kid, but instead try to recreate the feeling of the memory of eating the dish, using current techniques. John used his present-day comedic perspective and, and 15 kids who are currently between the ages of 8 and 13 to recreate what being a kid felt like for him. The result has since been nominated for two Emmys, Outstanding Writing for a Variety Special and Outstanding Variety Special. The clip I'm going to play doesn't need much context. It's a focus group. John is playing the movie producer. The kids are playing kids. It's very funny. So here is John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Okay. First off, I want to thank all of you for helping us with this focus group for Sony Animation's new movie, 
Bamboo 2, Bamboozled. It's a sequel to Bamboo, which came out in 2009, before any of you were born. Now, you've just seen the first and final cut of the film. It's 84 minutes long. We'd love to get any reactions you have. First thoughts, there are no wrong answers. Yes? Um, the reason I like this movie is because it's my favorite movie of all time. Interesting. Now, you said the same thing last weekend at the focus group for Minion 7, President Minions. Minion 7, President Minions was my favorite movie. But that movie is nothing to me now. That is the past. I am a new woman. You're all about Bamboo 2 now. Yeah. Bamboo 2, Bamboozled, is my identity now. It's my Halloween costume, my birthday theme, my thermos. It will be my favorite- Hold on, I'm writing this down. Good. It will be my favorite movie forever. Wow. Strong words. Uh, raise your hands if this movie that you just saw, Bamboo 2, Bamboozled, is your favorite movie of all time. Okay, that's unanimous. And uh, who among you thinks you might run home and tell the entire plot of the movie breathlessly to the first adult they see? In the movie, the koala Kimmy has- Yeah, I produced it, I know, but yeah. Kimmy the koala has to go find her mojo, so she goes to the jungle, and then they fall in the mud, and at the end there's a song. Yeah. And but one part I forgot was when the kangaroo falls on his butt. Could we use that entire thing as the logline to the movie? You may. All right. Let's talk about some of the characters. Sir. Excuse me, um, the woman said I can leave at five, but I can leave at 5.30. That's great feedback. Thank you. Now, the studio spared no expense getting some very big names to voice the different, you know, animals or whatever. Who knows who did the voice of Benji the Cockatiel? Mark Ruffalo! That's right, Mark Ruffalo from uh, You Can Count On Me, HBO's The Normal Heart. Would you raise your hands if knowing that Mark Ruffalo was doing the voice of the cockatiel enhanced your experience of the movie? That is unanimous. Okay. And who do we think did the voice of Kiki the boa constrictor? Elizabeth Banks. At first I was like, who is this? Is it Anna Kendrick? Is it Elizabeth Banks? And it was. Wasn't Anna Kendrick Dottie the dodo? Very good. It was Anna Kendrick. But who knows who did the voice of her husband and or brother, Denny the dodo? It was definitely someone. And frankly, it was driving me crazy. Okay, raise your hands if you could tell that the voice of Denny the Dodo was someone, but you couldn't quite place him. It was Jeremy Renner. Oh! Oh, yeah! Finally. Now, the wise old wombat. Mandy Patinkin. Yes, Mandy Patinkin. How early did you know? Immediately. As soon as he exhaled through his nose, I turned to the man next to me and said, that's all, Mandy. You were sitting next to a man you didn't know. When I came back from the bathroom, I sat next to the wrong guy. How many times did you go to the bathroom? Five. Four productive. Mm. One thing! Yes. My name's Isabella. This is my favorite movie. I went to the bathroom nine times. I just want to tell you about what happens in this one scene of the movie. Well, I produced it. I know all the scenes, but yeah. All the lady emus are at the water, and then the song comes in. Ah, the song Today is the Day by Ed Sheeran, written for this movie, but not in context. The song comes in, and they like... And then they go... Yeah. Yep. The scene where they dance around, yeah. They do dance around. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Now... When they're down at the river, Arnold the Wombat, Dax absolutely is Dax Shepard, says something is fake news. Now, uh, did any of you get that joke? No? Okay. Did anyone's parents laugh at that joke? Yeah. A, a light laugh? An acknowledgement. That's all it deserves. I can't thank you enough for this. I mean, you've given us your feedback, but more importantly, you've given us your time. 
Now, no one goes home empty-handed. So as you're leaving, some woman is gonna give you a backpack shaped like a koala that's fairly useless, and it is filled with tubes of yogurt. Let's laugh into it. <laughs> and I, I am here with John Mullaney. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's it's so good to be here, Jesse. So to get into it, you know, the way I've heard you talk about the Sack Bunch lunch, it wasn't so much as like a light bulb turning on as it was like a, a dimmer switch slowly illuminating. Um, can you sort of walk me through the process to the point where you're like, this is something I actually want to pitch and be on the hook to do? Well, <clears throat> I knew I wanted a room full of light, but it didn't even start at dimmer switch. It started with like, maybe I'll get a bunch of flashlights and point them at mirrors. And then um, I'm bad at uh, fully uh, carrying this analogy. But uh, then, sure. it, then, it, then it was a dimmer switch that I turned up to brightness. And then I went, oh, right, that's exactly what I pictured. I just couldn't articulate it to yeah. anyone from Netflix A24 or even myself. So can uh, outside of the analogy, how did it actually go? Um, that's a very funny way to phrase that. <laughs> outside of your analogy, what actually happened? This was the first time this has happened to me because I mainly work in spaces where I'm emulating a style. You know, mm -hmm. obviously documentary now is like the most profound example of that. SNL is, you know, you grow up knowing what an SNL sketch kind of sounds like. So you're working within that structure. And uh, stand-up wise, um, you know, I have a slightly old uh, timey sensibility. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone pointed that out before? I think that's the first I've heard. This old timey <laughs> I, sensibility of yours. I'm waiting to hear an impression of me. Um, and so like, yeah, I'm working within forms that already exist, but, you know, putting a spin on them. This idea did not originate that way. Later on, in order to do good press, I said things like, I was thinking about 321 Contact in Sesame Street, and I thought, no one's done one of those with a darker sensibility. So I called Merica Sawyer, and we wrote it. And then David Byrne was already dropping by to get <laughs> yeah. a bike, bicycle tire pump. And uh, things got pretty groovy. Um, the original seedlings were just, oh, a school gym when they have a play. That would be an interesting look. Because like, I watch a lot of specials, and... I'm very interested in the sets and, and what looks different and how sketch shows make themselves look different. And I was seeing a uh, junior high production of the play Our Town. And I was looking at the school gym stage with like the paper cardboard set and just the way a gym looks at night. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen something presented with this staging. So it started off like, what if we did SNL with kids in a school gym, but ran it like SNL? And did it live yeah. for Netflix. Um, that was my idea. Uh, and then I talked to America Sawyer about it. And she said, I think that's a really, really bad idea because they'd be kids. And I said, no, we'd have a dress rehearsal and then we'd have meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, I think kids can memorize, but I don't know if they take notes like in 15-minute rush sessions before a live taping. And she has a kid and I don't. So I said, agree to disagree. Yeah. Um, we were kicking around though this idea of like school theater, you know, our town has the stage manager. I thought, oh, I could be something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say we, I mean, I was kicking it around. And then uh, Merica said, did you ever read the Nutshell Gang library? 
by Maurice Sendak? And I said, no. And there were a series of little books, one of them called Chicken Soup with Rice that Carol King made an album out of. Mm-hmm. That's uh, We kind of ripped off our song, A Plain Plate of Noodles. So she showed me that. I'd seen 321 Contact in Sesame Street. And I, I was thinking when I was trying to think of a variety show, the, the second most successful variety show to SNL is Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. That's the only other one that like measures up in terms of longevity and kind of going from a very loose form to a more rigid one. And they both had Paul Simon on a lot in the 70s. So that intrigued me, that's, that like world, and Reading Rainbow and all that. So all that bouillabaisse, which is a French fish soup, mm-hmm. uh, got stirred together. And then once I finished the script with Merica, once Merica and I finished the script, then we knew what it was. But before that, we did not. And that was very scary. What was the sort of time frame for all of this? Like, at what point is sort of A24 or Netflix on board? Like, in all of those back and forths, like, how long of a process are you and America sort of like going through the fog to find this thing? In a wonderful way, they weren't on our ass about what's it going to be. There was a sense of like, we trust you, which I was really bummed about because I wanted them to uh, <laughs> step in and help me from uh, doing Our Town live. Um, <laughs> but the process of pitching it was i was i was up front i was i was up front with what i had and i did genuinely i said i know this is going to work and this had never happened to me before where i have i said i can picture it i can't describe it but i know by my standards it will work mm-hmm. and robbie pra and ben Cavey put a lot of trust into me and so i bought a couple months of writing songs and we'd turn in demos of songs about noodles <laughs> and do flowers exist at night and we'd be like so this is part of it wait for more and they were really patient i mean i had an early conference call with them they said what guest stars were you thinking and i said i really want dick gregory and someone said dick gregory is dead and then I said, okay, well, someone else then. So I was definitely producing a very nebulous thing, and they were kind enough to not uh, pull the plug and kick me out of show business. How, how, in general, how did you write it? What was sort of the process of you guys working together on, on the thing? And, and in general, how has working at SNL sort of influenced how you think writing a thing should work? SNL influenced it a lot because as much as I'm making fun of how much I was procrastinating and didn't nail down what it was going to be, we knew, okay, now we know it's Sesame Street. So it's songs, it's little vignettes where you go to like a candlestick factory. (laughs) It's um, a puppet running away and going near far. It's very short things where someone just goes like, wet paint. And, And you can use those as interstitials between bits. And then it's full sketches. Once we knew that, we just started writing sketches and songs. Mm. But um, I thought at the end, we would have a quick run of little interviews with the kids where you hear them speak on their own. And then we started interviewing the Sacklund Bunch. And the interviews were so compelling to me that we made that the backbone of the special. In auditions, most of the audition was me interviewing them. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to include a little of that. But... I was extremely blessed that that became a thing to build the whole special around. So for Bamboo to Bamboozled, uh, mm-hmm. where did you start? Where did the, the idea of that start? Um, uh, that was an idea, America, and I don't know if it was a sketch idea or just a thing America and I had talked about for like a decade. 
I, I think someone, I think we walked past a poster for Rio too. And I don't know if it's Mark Ruffalo, but it might be. And I just said, does it enhance the kids' experience of the movie that, uh, <laughs> that like Terry Bradshaw plays the walrus? Like, do they care? I had a real issue for like a week for some reason about famous people in animated films because the great Disney ones just used, you know, Jody Benson and. Uh, Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach, who were stars in their own right, but of course weren't as big as... <laughs> so I thought it was really funny, the arms race to get the most famous people in the world in animated roles. And that kids didn't even give a shit because they, you know, they don't know that that's Mandy Patinkin. Do you remember the first time you recognized a voice actor in an animated movie? I was trying to think. I, was, I think it was Robin... For me, it's Robin Williams in Fern Gully. Oh, I recognized him in Aladdin because of marketing, though. Yeah, because it was like... Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin. Yes. And then um, I remember being one of the only kids that knew he was doing an Ed Sullivan impression and, <laughs> and uh, like Nixon or whoever else he did. Yeah. So you're saying about where you went from there, 10 years of thinking about Rio 2. I'd been thinking about that sketch for a while. I've been thinking about that idea. I did it as a stand-up joke once. But it was a little, uh, it had a bit of vitriol towards the people in the audience, many of whom take their kids to these movies. And I was really going after Rio 2. And after a while, Rio 2 was not in theaters anymore. And I was still bitching about it. Yeah. So I, I put it in my chest of drawers of grievances, um, grievances of the privileged. And mm-hmm. then uh, America said, why don't we do it as a focus group? So I guess America gets all the credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then... Uh, do you sort of just like write down jokes you have on the subject area of that? Or, or do, you, do you start with an outline or do you start with the jokes and then plug it into Oh, it? that wrote itself very quickly because I'd been saying all those sentences like verbatim. Like, I think we would act it out a little. Like, yeah. raise your hand if it, you thought it was fun when Dax Shepard was the uh, bird. And the joke of like when there's a joke for parents, you know, mm-hmm. like, I did not sleep with that woman. And you're like, okay, why is that in Aladdin? Um <laughs> We wanted to hit that. So actually, we wrote that in like one divinely inspired muse writing. (laughs) I want to go through some of the jokes and you can tell me if anything specific inspired it or you can say it was just a thing that you thought. But so it's the sequel to Bamboo, which came out in 2009 before any of you were born. Was that a joke you already had? Do you have a specific memory of that? No, that's a bit rare. That's a bit rare of a phenomenon to pick on, but we did... I think it was Kung Fu Panda. I found out that the most recent Kung Fu Panda had a significant distance from the last Kung Fu Panda. And I thought that was interesting because kids wouldn't know the last ones, but then I found out kids like to watch like anything. <laughs> and the, the, it's their favorite movie. It's all of their favorite movies of all time. Yes. It's, uh, uh, well, that was me. After I left the movie, it was my favorite movie. After I saw Wayne's World, that was my favorite movie. After I saw The Freshman with Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick, that was my favorite movie. Uh, any movie I saw was my favorite movie. I'd walk home thinking about it and be like, I'll never be the same. The, the joke that I think Tyler says, which is, the woman said I can leave at 5, but I can leave at 5.30. Uh, <laughs> tell me about that joke, because it's interesting, because in a, a regular sketch, People don't say things that are not about what's happening in this sketch. But it's interesting to have a person raise their hand and then have a side tangent of like their own world. That to me was an observation of kids who might just tell you a fact that you don't need to know. Not in an annoying way, uh, but they just might tell you like, 
the woman said I could leave at five, but I could leave at five thirty, and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, or you know, my dad once had a fishing boat, and you're like, okay, I don't know where to go with that. It also was kind of based on the great Tyler Burke, who delivered the line. He has many non sequiturs and can toss off a fact or a thought that might not be something we were all talking about, but they're they're fascinating. How did you land on the voice actors? Were there a lot of people who were bouncing around? Like, what makes Elizabeth Banks? I think I felt was the most spot on of a type of voice. Like, how did you, was there a lot of back and forth in those choices? <laughs> Not a lot. We, Not a lot. Uh, we, uh, well, we didn't want someone like Jack Black, who's so identified with uh, Kung Fu Panda or like, you know, John Mulaney with uh, Spider Hammers. It was just yes, yeah. someone people talk about all the time. <laughs> so we were going for that uh, Jeremy Renner. <laughs> we, were, we were going for Richard Kind in Pixar's Inside Out. Although I think a lot of kids knew he was knew it was Richard Kind. He gets recognized for that role. I think we nailed it with who's in them. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo, Anna Kendrick. The Anna Kendrick and Elizabeth Banks was a lot of fun. And then Dax Shepard, of course. Dax Shepard, Jeremy Renner being hard to recognize, Mandy Patinkin, and Jacob knows it immediately. Who is that kid who knows that's man that's our Mandy? Is that a specific like in your head, is there a specific kid who's like there's one kid in a group that will know that. And for whatever reason, that's the world. Like when you imagine whoever that is, who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of me, mm-hmm. but that's what I would have been like. But in the, in the body of like young Simon Rich. Yeah. In terms of the cast, you know, you talked about seeing dozens and dozens of kids before sort of landing on the 15. Uh, maybe you need to know exactly at the time, but now that you've sort of worked with them, have you realized what you were looking for? When we started auditioning, a big boost of faith in the project came back to me because I realized I was looking for kids that were super talented, but then could converse and didn't feel like, for lack of a better term, stage kids. Mm -hmm. I, at one point, wanted to cast it in Iowa, I said, because I thought that's where real people were. I don't know. I'm from Illinois. I don't know why I thought that. Um, It's like something out of like a 40s movie where a producer's like, we're going to go to Iowa and get a real person. Mm -hmm. But I was worried that kids with too much experience might somehow be, you know, I don't know. Who's a kid star? Uh, Mickey Rooney or something. None of them were Mickey Rooney. They were pros. They were extremely talented. But when you call cut, they were kids and you could talk to them like regular kids. Was it hard to get kids to act sort of the way you wanted? Like, did you have to explain the tone to them? Were they ever like, what is this? No, not much. A couple lines. The hardest thing to convey to them was deliver this line like you're upset about it, but also you don't even care. You're so tired. And they were like, what? And I was like, go like, you know what? Ah, Forget it. Like, you know, when you're really mad, but also you're so depressed and tired, you can't even say it. And they'd look at me, but they'd do it correctly. But it was not that that was an emotional memory they didn't have. But they really knew how to toss, like Ava Briglia saying in acknowledgement in the uh, focus group about the fake news joke I loved. And Linda Sutton was very good at tossing those off. So was Tyler in the Googie sketch when he says, my call time was at three and he was dead at three. It was exactly <laughs> how I hoped for it. In general, this is maybe hard to explain, but what were you going for in terms of the like, fourth wall of this sketch in in so much as like i think of sketches in terms of where it's people playing characters and they're in the scenario 
where here it's not exactly clear if you are yourself and if the kids are also you and if you're partly out of it in a way that's like almost closer to like a skit of like we're all us but we're gonna do this scenario did you sort of consider that distinction of like how much of a like essentially a fourth wall do we want to build between this or do we want it to sort of feel just like an extension of us just talking in the focus group sketch specifically yeah, yeah. yeah. well one my guiding North Star was all the kids will just talk like me yeah. uh, and not like kids. Because when I was a kid, I talked like me because my dad talked to me like this. So I never had like a parent that like bent down when you were on the floor mm-hmm. and was like, what's your toy's name? Who's this guy? You know, that never happened. So I thought it would be funny if the kids were sort of flat and dry. There's lots of other joke moves they have. But it wasn't so much supposed to be all of these kids are me and I am also me. Because uh, I was doing a really good job acting as like a studio executive. Got it. Because yeah. um, people afterwards were like, "That like, whoa, it's like, whoa, it's like Carlito's way, mm-hmm. The Revenant, and then that in terms of uh, the greatest performances ever. And I was like, thank you, but it's about the kids. Um, but your question is very true for the special as a whole. It, it was kind of like, well, this is about America and I's childhood. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to see how much it matches up with their experience of being a kid. And it matched up a lot. But we would have little nods to our childhood. Like there's a Ronald Reagan mention in the David Byrne song we do. Mm. Just as if to say, this is not contemporary, but it also fortunately is. The one thing I note, especially as you sort of watch through the special, it's like hard not to see certain SNL parallels having spoken to you and other writers there where you sort of come in and you're a writer and you want to like plug all these funny people into your brilliant idea. And then once you work there more, you realize like the job is to like write for the strengths of the cast. Yes. And I think you notice that where it it comes much more about these kids. Was there a realization that you guys had and, and how did the project evolve once you realized like ultimately we're again, just writing for who these people are? Absolutely accurate. It became like, And very quickly, after a couple days of rehearsal and workshops, we started writing and saying, oh, that would be a good line for Camille. Oh, Orson could nail that line. Their personalities and the part of themselves they could, like, act was very clear. And so, man, we gelled with them faster than the SNL cast, uh, just in terms of knowing strengths and writing towards them. Yeah. But it was really fast. We were extremely happy with the casting. Like, not just how talented they were, but just so proud of ourselves for casting them. (laughs) They were all, they all hit a different note and we could just ping pong back and forth from them. I feel like the the segment that captures this most is the one where you're just playing chess with Tyler. You know, talk about looks or knights, aka a horse. This this is a knight, even though it looks like a horse, but it's a knight. I would would have named it the horse. Me too, but you know. I call Friday Ty Day. Because your name is Tyler. Yes. I call this thousand year period the millennium. I think that's just as clever as Ty Day. What do you do to relax, to unwind at the end of the day? Get in the car, I just drive. Nowhere in particular? Wherever the sun takes me. Seems like everything in life works out for you. Okay, kind of. In retrospect, it kind of does. 
Do you feel you're old enough for retrospect? No, not really. Yeah. I don't even know what it means. I just bought up a fancy wood. I watch a lot of stand-up comedy. Oh, really? Uh, what's your favorite comedy special? Nanette. Right. How did that idea come together and what were you going for? Exactly that. I was just going for me and Tyler talking with Bernard Herrmann music playing. Tyler and I, Tyler was very interesting to me from the moment he walked in the audition. He walked in, first day of auditions, and he said, oh, hi, I was on your episode of SNL. I said, you were? He said, I was in a little short with a bunch of other kids. And I said, oh, the Diane Feinstein thing? And he said, yes, but it was cut. And I said, I had no control over that. I'm sorry it was cut. And he said, oh, that's okay. And then he walked over to where he was going to do his audition. And he sang Mr. Aladdin, sir. And then I was interviewing him, and he, what was the moment that I... I wrote down he's in. Oh, he was talking about tag and how everyone plays tag at recess and he doesn't have anything against tag. He said, I, I just find it rather, mm, and I said, repetitive. And he went, beautiful. <laughs> and I just said to Reese Thomas, our director, I just want to do something where Tyler and I are talking, not verite, I guess, but just unscripted and play the looseness and, the, mm -hmm. and follow his train of thought. And Tyler does play chess and he's good at it and he wanted to teach me. So I said, why don't you teach me to play chess in this? And he really tried and he was really frustrated with me actually. <laughs> at one point we left it in, he goes, we haven't talked about rooks, we haven't talked about bishops or the horse that we call the knight, even though it looks like a horse. That was in the very beginning when he was trying to teach me all the pieces. What of any of it did you actually write? And, and what did Tyler come up with? You, like, what did you have, if anything? I regret in the chess thing writing two lines because people now might very logically assume that that piece was written and only two lines were. The lines that were written were, what do you do to unwind? I get in the car and I just drive. Sure. And then I say, nowhere in particular. And he goes, just wherever the sun takes me. And then the other scripted line was when he says, I watch a lot of comedy specials, and I say, what's your favorite? And he says, Nanette. Yeah, that was the one I wrote down. I was like, if that's true, that is fascinating. But yeah, so then everything else. Yeah, everything else was Tyler talking. When I said, I guess everything works out for you in life pretty well, and he went, okay, uh, <laughs> maybe, in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, everything else. So he calls Fridays tie day. Fridays are tie day, yeah. He still says it. And he was kind of bummed when we were shooting because it was his birthday, but it was on a Thursday. And he said, well, it would be better if my birthday was on a Friday because that's tie day. And I said, but you're excited it's your birthday. And he said, yeah, I am, yeah. He had to bang a gong at the end of Do Flowers Exist at Night? And he jumped down. It was his last day of shooting. I said, Tyler, that must have been pretty cool. And he said, oh, um, it wasn't that loud, though, and then walked away. Were there any ones that you cut that you regret cutting? I feel like you probably remember all of them. Were there things that he said that you, you, you were like, this is just so good? There's a thing we're going to try again, but I, mm -hmm. I couldn't work a puppet well enough. And we really were, that production, we were under the gun. So we couldn't spend any more time with me trying to manipulate a puppet. Um, <laughs> there was a sketch I do miss called Mr. Molecules, where Richard Kind plays a funny, wacky science guy on a kid's show. Mm -hmm. And he's doing an experiment 
and how to make crystals, like when you put like a string and water, whatever the hell that was when you were a kid. Yeah. And he says, any questions? And all the questions the kids have are like, what does your home look like? I always wonder, like, describe it. And then Camille says, is it a mid-rise, the kind of building that looks like a hospital? And we just keep asking him questions and speculating about his life. And someone says, are you your mother's guardian? I bet he's his mother's guardian. That was a lot of fun. We had to lose that, though. We'll be right back with John Mulaney. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And we're back with John Mulaney. So in the special, you joke about whether the thing is ironic or not. And clearly it's it's not. But for me, part of the amusement is that like you, John Mulaney, are doing this right now. Uh, and I say this and I'm going to offer a little tangent that I think you may or may not like, which is I, because I, we did that big interview for Vulture five years ago, for years, people would ask me what I thought you would do next. Oh, did you have ideas? No, I, I kind of speculated like, well, he really seems to be into stand up or when it was Oh, hello. It's like he loves doing Oh, hello. But even during Oh, hello, I talked to certain people and they'd be like, OK, but after that, what is he going to do? Like, is he going to star in movies? I was like, you know, I don't know. And some of these times were conversations with like pretty important people. I will tell you later, but like, no, tell me on air. <laughs> I will not tell you on air. Tell me on the air. Name names. No. Aw, man. <laughs> I feel like it'd be a breaking of whatever trust I had with those. But like, let's say like executive type people. Oh, they're executives? They're executives. Oh, okay. That's less interesting then. I still want to know, but it's less interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you later. Um, this is all to say when you started working on this, why did you think you wanted to do it? And now that you've had time since it came out and you start thinking about maybe doing other ones, why do you now think you wanted to do this? So people were speculating or asking you what I was going to do next. Yes. And you didn't know because I didn't tell you because I didn't know either. Sure. And then the thing I thought to do was a thing called the Sack Lunch Bunch. Yes. With songs and silly skits. And then instead of doing a bunch of other things, I invested my own money in making a th the sack lunch bunch. Okay, I see. Okay, I could see. <laughs> I could see where the question is. Um, you mean like why do this when I could have done other stuff? Hypothetically, yeah. But like, why do this? And now that truly hypothetically, though, it's not like there was there wasn't some other. I didn't yeah, I think like... that's the thing, which is like hypothetically, you could have had a different idea and done that idea. But this is right. the idea you did have, and you're like, I'm going to pursue this idea. Yeah. And why did you think, yeah, I'm going to pursue this idea? And now I don't know if you have more perspective as you are oh. continuing to pursue it. If you're like, oh, maybe this was why I wanted to do this. 
Yes. Well, I, I just liked it. I just liked the idea and I wanted to see it. And I wasn't going to do a stand-up special. I wanted to take a few years off before the next one. But I like specials. I really mm-hmm. like our specials. I don't know how strong my aptitude is for series television to plot an arc for a series and, and write that way. I enjoy thinking about it, but I really like contained specials. I really mm-hmm. like Saturday Night Live. Like you race towards the show, then you have the show, and then the show's over. And I just like that 60-minute format. So I wanted to do a quote-unquote variety special, but I I didn't even want to use that word because all the comparisons are not that great other than Mm. a couple. And then I got this idea and I kept liking it and I kept liking it and I kept liking it. And I had done some music with Eli Bolin on Documentary Now for a Stephen Sondheim parody. And I was like, oh, it'd be fun to do something with songs. And Netflix basically said to their great credit, and I'm very, very forever grateful. Like, well, you can do an hour of whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So then I, you know, went and saw our town at a gym. <laughs> but I just liked the idea and I wanted to see it. As I started making it, I thought stand-up is a vehicle for expressing a lot about myself. This was, to me, even more. And mm-hmm. it just, I kind of wanted to make something nice. Like, I don't mean I'm nice or this is going to warm hearts. I just, I just wanted to do something with the kind of edge to it that like I, I grew up on, like in Little Shop of Horrors or the movie Clue or something. Mm. And uh, that tone, I just miss it, you know? So I wanted something like that. And I wanted to see if I could write for kids without the joke being that the kids are saying, you know, profane adult yeah, things, yeah. which I'm not above, by the way. I just wanted to see if I could do it without that. Um, and then when we cast it, I was just like, man, I would work with the bunch forever. So in terms of doing it again, that was the most rewarding experience in my career. So after the first one, I was absolutely thrilled to do two more. So going back, preparing for this, I was, I was rewatching your specials through the, the idea that we're going to talk about Sack Lunch Bunch. And, you know, you, you talk about childhood a lot. Sometimes you'd be talking about your specific childhood, but often it's just about sort of universal childhood ideas, like in your last special assembly. Um, in terms of getting an audience on board with a commonly understood topic, in your head, what are the advantages of talking about childhood opposed to talking about even adult life, which I think can get overly, like adult life can just be more complex and more individual to sort of generalize about? You know, like when you talk about like, well, all dating is like this, where I feel like childhood, do you feel like there's an advantage to it in that way? I guess, what does it offer to you? Is there something about it that is useful or more conducive to generate material that would connect to uh, an audience? Well, it's in part that it takes me a long time to form takes on things. Hmm. I really am jealous of comedians like Bill Burr can have a take on something almost immediately, you know? He'll be like, they can't do stem cells. Cause you could, you're just like, wow, I, wow, you already have like a 10 minute chunk on this. It takes me decades to get any kind of hindsight or perspective on things. And so, you know, when I was 21, I really didn't know how to comment on being 21. It wasn't a conscious choice, but I would look back at my childhood and, I was still stumped by so many things Hmm. and uh, so many behaviors. So that's why I started talking about it. Why I continue to talk about it (laughs) into my 30s is that 
those emotions all came back. You know, it, when I was in my 20s, I'd look at my child and go, why was I so emotional? Sometimes yeah. jealous and angry, but then so happy. And what was wrong with me? And then as I got older, I started having those same emotions again. And I'd be like, whoa, this, I'm, this is like a repeat of being ditched and standing on the street fuming. Like those, those weird ghosts came back. And I started to see how in my teens and 20s, I became a much different, in some ways, better person. And as I started to get older and a little crankier, I was more like I was when I was a teenager. So, yeah, I just can't escape it, you know? Yeah. One thing that I, I noticed rewatching this and your stories of your childhood was like, I realized how bad of memory I have. I don't, I don't remember much sort of like, and like who I was as a kid just like seems like a different person. Like I know things they did, but I feel like I, as a result, don't trust my memories as facts as much as the sort of like manifestations or projections of what I think that guy was doing. You, however, seemingly have a very good memory. I feel like I listened to you, Seth Meyers talked about how you had a really good memory. What is your relationship to your memory? I do have a very good memory for events and the specifics of where everyone was standing and who said what and what that event, you know, that event was right after we went to that girl's uh, pool party after her sister's christening. And I remember because my bathing suit was wet in the car, those types of things. It's not photographic. It's like anecdotal, <laughs> anecdotal accuracy. I also think... I think, though this is why I was interested to work with kids, that I had a good emotional memory for my childhood. I could get in touch with the helpless rage and grandiosity that I felt as a kid. I remembered that stuff very well. I would remember an incident and remember how embarrassed I was. And I was embarrassed because I was a great man who had just been humiliated, not an eight-year-old, you know, something like that. So I had a good emotional memory. You know, we've talked about the, the, the sort of inspirations of the special and the sadness or melancholy of these sort of kid specials in the 80s. And, you know, you and I are around the same age. And yes, I could point to things in kids programming that was sad. But I also think if you talk to a lot of people, they would not talk about their TV consumption as overly melancholic. Do you have a feeling of why those programs is what jumped out of you? When you thought back of the things you watched as a kid, why the things that stored in your memory were the ones that were sadder or melancholic that when you're getting to a point where you're going to create something of your own, that is the touchstone that you wanted to replicate? Why did I remember the sadder things? I don't know. It was that Shel Silverstein thing of things that were silly, but also a little poignant stuck in my memory more than things that were just plain old silly, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, like Raffi. I guess he was poignant too. Wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, did he do Flying Purple People Eater? No. That's no, no. sillier than he was. He's much that's more That's silly. That's fake. Yeah. That's fake. That That's why, like, I don't like that song. That's stupid. Like, it came in a spaceship. Like, that's just a story that never happened. But yeah. I know an old lady that swallowed a fly feels real. Uh, mm. Like, you know, you, if you talk to someone who worked in a hospital, uh, they might come home and tell you, like, this old lady came in and she had swallowed a spider to catch a fly. That song in particular, I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. I always thought, wow, this is a children's song. And perhaps she'll die, I remember. Like things like that, just they had an edge of creepiness that, I don't know, I got them engraved in the memory. Or like The Giving Tree. Everyone remembers The Giving Tree. I mean, that book is bullshit, but <laughs> everyone remembers The Giving Tree. 
one of the things that stuck out to me watching is the, the contrast of seeing these kids talk about their fears and sort of being so uncertain. And then you watch them be like the most effortless, brilliant performers in the world. And I feel like child acting gets a bad rap because of the examples. Yes, it does. But did you want the special to feel like a celebration of giving kids creative outlets? Giving kids creative outlets. It just like it felt like a celebration of like, oh, these kids got to perform at a young age. And that is so helpful for these feelings they have. Well, I'm really glad that comes across on the screen. I mean, that was kind of the experience of making it in that I wanted their performances to be good. What I didn't anticipate was that those kids would spend so much time with each other that it became like summer camp. And like, Mm -hmm. they had so much fun doing those dances, like those kids doing the song with Andre DeShields about algebra, just like their smiles were so big when they first ran it with them. And so the kind of joy that I, I hope came through, seeing that was just like an amazing surprise. Uh, not only does child acting get a bad rap, but the idea of working with children gets a bad rap. And working with a group of kids is great because they entertained each other, they rooted for each other. They rehearsed constantly because they loved singing the songs and doing the sketches and stuff. Um, yeah. So a celebration of their joy in performing was a like amazing byproduct. You, you, um, you've joked about how you learn more from the kids and they learn from you, even though it is the biggest cliche of cliches. What did you what? learn? What did you just say? It's the biggest cliche. No, like you I was like the first person to do that. Oh, well, I, I hate to break it to you. But like I had the first um, hair club for men chia pet joke. Uh, yes, I know it's such a cliche, but it was. Let me say this: I taught the kids nothing, and they made me cry. I will say, what did you think you were going to teach them? I like. Here's what I thought I'd teach them. Hi, I'm an adult, and I'm not going to talk to you like I'm an idiot. I'm not going to get on the floor and crawl around like. Uh, I'm some big, goofy Steve Zahn. You know, I'm not, you know? And let's have a conversation. I didn't have to teach them that. They were good at that right away. Tyler was even better at it than me. Uh, I went up to him after a table read, and I was like, what do you think? And he said, that was pretty good. I said, do you think that one worked? He said, yeah, I think it works. Um, I wanted to give them a few lessons, uh, all of which I'm glad I didn't. Um, You know, the, the importance of not overlooking revenge, that revenge gets a bad rap that people have falling outs because of credit, because people hog credit, so never do that uh, if you don't want to have falling outs with collaborators. And that I did want to tell them that people will lie to them. They'll lie to their face. They'll say, I swear, I swear to you on my kids, I would never tell page six that ever, ever. And they're lying. But don't say, I think you're lying, because they'll just keep denying it. Just go, okay, and take it in. And then later you know, in some way, knock them down and they'll know what it's for. Those were, those were the lessons I wanted to tell the kids. Sure. And I did want to tell them the thing I told Mr. Music at the end, which is no one cares. Like no one was, no one's mad at your own personal failure. Hmm. And what did you end up learning? Man, those little kids had more self-soothing ability and innate empathy for each other. Like when I was in high school, I remember a day when we were told that we shouldn't bully. Like it, it hadn't <laughs> been discussed before that you might not bully yeah. uh, 10% of the school population. But after Columbine, I remember our Spanish teacher 
telling us like, you guys can't do that anymore. You can't pick on a group of people like that, okay? And everyone was like, yeah, that makes sense. But bullying was a thing we had to be taught not to do. They had such an innate sense that you shouldn't make people feel left out, Mm -hmm. that if you have a big part, you should not overplay that in front of someone who in that song has a small part. They also had a lot of perspective on their fears. I was, I was just a basket case at that age. And this kid, Zell, uh, Zell Steel Morrow, who uh, has one of the last interviews in the special, said that his biggest fear was his friends and family dying because he's so close to them. And I said, do you think about that more than you'd like to? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, me too. And I said, is there anything that gives you comfort? And he said, I give myself comfort because... I remember that they're here with me now and there's nothing about it I can do. And even when they're gone, they'll always kind of be here in my heart. And I was like, oh my God. I like definitely cried and also thought this kid has more perspective on the terror of losing the people around you than I probably will ever have. Yeah. You know, I was, I was talking to my producer who has kids and watching this, you couldn't help but imagine the people that created this as kids. She felt like, well, this this show is clearly a thought a person had as a kid that they are sort of have carried with them. And so did this special feel like a way to process your childhood feelings in a way in which you had control and not necessarily your parents? Yes. However, what I was processing wasn't necessarily that they were too controlling. It was more that uh, life felt overwhelming and that I had this rich inner life and no one seemed to care or ask me about it or pay attention. It wasn't so much my parents were always on my case. They were, but I also was able to sneak out and walk around Chicago from a very young age and just kind of be a citizen. So Mm -hmm. what I was processing was, I was just, I just had dread. I just dreaded so many things, you know? I didn't eat spaghetti correctly, according to my dad, because I would cut it with a knife and fork. And he said to me once, you know, you're going to be at your wedding and your bride and her whole family are going to look over and you're going to be eating spaghetti like that. And she's not going to be happy. And I was truly like, oh, my God, like that could happen. And if I don't get this right, I'm going to be embarrassed at my wedding. But I don't I'm so bad at twisting spaghetti because I got a little, you know, shit empanada size hand. Um and, or, and then one time my dad said, what if you're at Buckingham Palace and they serve you spaghetti? And I was like, what scenario is this? <laughs> With Pay Attention, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, yeah. The song Pay Attention was about uh, trying to do a skit. And then my grandmother had a boyfriend named David. Uh, we changed it to Paul. And I was just always really kind of in awe of the situation of my aunts and mom truly having a problem with this very nice older man dating (laughs) our grandmother and doing crosswords and going to a lobster place together and how upset they would get about it. It was just, that was a real strange thing to see adults be, I don't, if my family's listening, you weren't petty, but to see adults be petty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like there's a moment in it where they get mad at their mother in the song because she wears a brooch that the passed away father gave her. It was a dress in real life, and the anger was, uh, it was just, it was just a strange thing to see adults be unreasonable. But it was trying to express the feeling of being overwhelmed and terrified all the time, which is what I was. It's interesting when you, you say it, I mean, like, you're not an overly, you, though you came up in a time where there were a lot of, like, 
overly confessional comedians. That was the, like, what was in the fashion. You know, as we talk about how you were considered old-timey, it was that you were not of the style of the day, which is, like, telling everyone what is happening to their, like, deepest, darkest secrets or whatever. And eh, they're public secrets. Yeah, sorry. Yes, these the entire house of cards in which that idea was built on famously has crumbled, but... It, it has uh, wiggled a little, yes. Yes, but you know what I mean. But, like, you... You were not of that style, but this does seem like a clearly a, a more personal work in that regard. Is there a reason why you feel like ultimately a special like this is a better conduit for things like that that maybe be hard for you to talk about on stage in that way? I will say I do think I'm pretty personal. Yes. It's all there. It's not about my balls or if they banged against something. Yes. And they have, you know. And it's not a long story about, I don't know, a curated story about a childbirth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, Seth Meyers, that was not about your insanely <laughs> true story of having a baby yes. in the lobby. I was just trying to think of stories that are... Uh, yeah, personal. it's not all personal stories in stand-up comedy are bad. So it's okay to be like, these are examples of personal things. Yes. In, in case Seth Myers is listening, we both think that story uh, is of good. Of course he's listening. Okay, so to me, I think I'm very personal and reveal very dark things about myself, but I know that they're a little hidden in the material. Yeah. And I enjoy doing that. So I, I think it's there, but like you'd have to watch all the specials at once and then like do a beautiful mind thing and mm -hmm. piece it together. So there were ideas, though, that are just hard to translate to stand-up the same way like some stand-up bits don't translate to sketch. And with songs and sketches, there were opportunities to communicate things from childhood I couldn't in stand-up. And then with the songs and the music of it, it made it like, you know, taking that and making it a big number is all the more fun. And for me, kind of like, wow, I remember the first day of my algebra tutor, and now we have this big <laughs> song with an orchestra recording it. I feel like there are certain comedians who, I, who I've talked to who talk about, like, ultimately our goal is trying to make the right people laugh. Um, I, Andy Samberg once said something to that effect to me. And then that's cool. Nothing begrudged doing that. And, and often it feels like it's less about being able to take a compliment as it is, like, just wanting to be acknowledging that people are receiving that you achieved what you were setting out to do. But I wanted to ask, what is it like to having kids as fans specifically, you know, with this... Or as you saw the story we did on Vulture of the kids on TikTok who do makeup while lip syncing your material. Does that feel different? Yeah, because they're listening to the stuff on YouTube for free. So <laughs> my royalty deal with Drag City Records. No, it feels different because I'm going to be saccharine again and hopefully I'll do better than they taught me more than I can teach them. But uh, it feels different because like thinking about like sitting in my room at night after I was supposed to be in bed on my Walkman listening to like George Carlin Class Clown or mm -hmm. Bring the Pain or Bob and Ray or Dennis Leary or I just every comedy album and just like laughing so goddamn hard and being so happy. The idea that a kid that age would be watching my stuff and enjoying it is extremely cool to me. So paying adults, please come. I do. I need that demo financially. But yeah, no, the like kids enjoying it to the point that they do it on TikTok is uh, it's just very, very rewarding. Yeah. Um, so it was announced you're doing two more of these, but now on Comedy Central or with Comedy Central. What can you 
say of why the move and but beyond that how does it reflect what do you hope for the future of this project i just really wanted commercials <laughs> i wanted after doing the first one to do not just one more but a, a couple more and i i was thrilled that netflix had us premiere on christmas eve one that was just like a very, very good slot to get. And I liked that it was when people would be home for Christmas break and it eventized it, it being for, you know, kids and adults. And Comedy Central was very interested in that as well. And in syncing these with, you know, a, a holiday, the first day of school, whatever it may be. And so the, that continuation will continue at Comedy Central. And it was so, it was so cool to have it at Netflix because it's a, a great platform and the kids were so excited because they watch The Office on Netflix all day long. <laughs> However, Comedy Central made an offer to do too. And uh, that is how that happened. That's a more business-like answer. It's not, That's all fine. That, it's not all that inspiring. This is what I guess, but I feel like people were like, well, why would you move it? Netflix is everything. I know. I really wanted to, I, I really... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, what do you think? <laughs> Why do you think I moved it? I know. Also, uh, I can't even. I never know what I can talk about. And honestly, no one ever cares. Yeah, uh, to there, be like, little, there, oh, they gave us an extra day of production or whatever, I imagine. There's, there's like, yes, we did get that. Um, and uh, they didn't give us less money. Yeah. Uh, and also there's some tie-ins with like, you know, Viacom has channels for children. So yeah, uh, yeah there's some great stuff there. And I kind of started at Comedy Central. Yeah, and also we are of the age where Comedy Central was the thing we watched. Like, we are of the Comedy Central generation, where once we were starting to be allowed to watch TV, this network came and was like, we have comedy. And that is like the same age as these kids are. I feel like in that way, it feels fitting. Yeah, this this was around the... Okay, so if I was a sack lunch bunch kid, this would be the age that I... I didn't have cable because my parents thought that uh, it would be fun to not give us cable. Um, so I would go to my friend's house and watch, you know, Beavis and Butthead and then Comedy Central. And that was right at that age, 12. So the next one will be a holiday special, which which makes a lot of sense. You don't have to give too many details, but can you just say when you think of holiday specials, what comes to mind? Like, what is the a tone of a holiday special that you might see in a, in a Sack Bunch Lunch holiday special? Well, like... I love how It's a Wonderful Life is considered a Christmas movie, but it's actually only Christmas at the end when everyone <laughs> brings them coffee cans full of cash and the rest of it is just an existential freakout. I'll do that. I'll rip that off. Like, yeah. I enjoy the marketing of a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, they're a good touchstone, and I like... It could be a cool touchstone if it's, you know, Labor Day or the beginning of school or whatever. But I, but I would mention it as much as It's a Wonderful Life mentioned Christmas. Yeah. Which is like, it's Christmas and George Bailey screams at a teacher. Oh, interesting. So I was, I was rereading our, our conversation from five years ago, which focused a lot on how uh, Mulaney didn't work out. And the thing that jumped out at me was at one point and you said... Can I, can I say something about that? Sure. Thank you for doing that. That was like it, really cathartic. And uh, it was so nice to talk to you about it. And you also printed like so much of the conversation which I really appreciated. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. I, it felt like at least it was good to be like, let's talk about it and then like move on. This is a thing that happened and now we're not just defined by this thing that happened to you. Oh, I never had to talk about it again. <laughs> yeah. Just give them a printed copy of it. But the thing that I always remembered was 
you were sort of on this roll, like your career started going, you got the specials and SNL, and then you got Mulaney. And you said, had I gotten used to things just working out, I don't know if it would have been so good for me as a human being on Earth to think that way. Oh, I already knew that then? Yeah. So things are going well for you again, John. Do you feel good about it? Ah, huh. You ask an excellent question because I do think about those things. I'm not trying to do another tie-in, but Sack Lunch Bunch helped with that. Working with those people and those kids was a very nice dose of, of I don't know what, of some kind of perspective. And it was very necessary at that time. I wouldn't say that I there's been so much success that I'm I'm worried about my character, though I am worried about aspects of it and becoming, you know, a more negligent friend because I, you know, I'm quote unquote so busy. And uh, I, I, I worry about those things, about letting care and attention and mindfulness slide. So yes, I do worry about that. I also, I do try to not do too much. I try to do one or two things a year. I think after that TV show, Mulaney, the series on Fox, mm-hmm. 6.30 Eastern, that was such a grind that there was the additional idea that if I did that job specifically and was successful, grind plus success. I, I've had some very nice success and also space out the uh, intense working times. And uh, I try not to release too much stuff. So that's a safeguard against becoming an asshole by <laughs> working too much and making it scarce and few and far between the moments where I have to be self-consumed with a project. So the way you put it, you mentioned that Sack Bunch Lunch was helpful, and I just want to get a sense of exactly what it was. Was it that you learned to not take it for granted when you're doing these things? Was it just sort of seeing that like this is fun? Is that the idea of like performing is a useful way of dealing with the fact that you are afraid of everything or whatever? Yeah, it was it was exactly the thing when my parents would be out at some charity gala and we'd be home in Chicago and we'd be scared because on the news someone escaped from prison or whatever. And uh, just like watching The Simpsons and just suddenly being so happy, like the warm glow of the TV. Uh, there was that. But the Sack Lunch Bunch also gave me some perspective because they're little kids and they have no control over their life. Mm-hmm. They are told what to do. They are physically taken by the arm and put into cars and then taken to karate lessons. What's interesting about that is no one has any control over their life. We've grown up and we think we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we become sometimes extremely frustrated or dysregulated when things are not going the way we want. Kids, I don't even remember if I ever had a, here's how I want things to go in my head. (laughs) I just wanted to, maybe hopefully karate would be canceled and my mom would make her pizza chicken that night. So seeing their kind of, not zen, but total acceptance that they were not in control of their lives was a reminder that I was not in control of my life and Mm -hmm. should stop emailing people thinking I am. So that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it is a laughing round. Question one is, what's the Sack Bunch Lunch song you sing in your head most often? Plain plate of noodles, and I saw a white lady standing on the street just sobbing, and I think about it once a week. 
I'm that I think everyone I asked it was one of those two songs. Oh really? Yeah, those it must be the tunes of those songs, but th- literally those com- those came up the most. There are phrases from I saw a white lady standing on the street just sobbing that that stick with me and they come up in certain situations. So I think that's a big reason why that one sticks with me. Like, uh, lady, I know that the sky isn't clear, but it cannot rain every day of the year. Is That's like a thing I think is often around rain. Are you still on a text thread with the bunch? And what was the last thing you texted about? No, I never joined the thread. Because oh, okay. I'm like 37 and they're <laughs> 12. I Zoomed with them a couple times during the quarantine, which I guess is still going on, but in the spring. And yeah, we had a couple great Zooms. Okay. Um, last time you were they're, on... They're still on the text chain. They still are on the text chain and they stay up all night on it, apparently. That is that is really nice. D- last time you were on, I asked you if there was a joke you wish you could steal. And I believe it was something about facts about Andrew Johnson or Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, yeah. It was uh, Joe Zimmerman. Is there any other joke? Do you have a new joke you wish you could steal? Yes, I do. Do I definitely do? Um, I wish I had earthquakes joke about when Michael Jordan and his wife were going to get divorced. He did a bit about the next guy that she dates, and <laughs> it's just about what a loser the guy would be living in Michael Jordan's house. And uh, I can't repeat so much of it, but um, w- one part is him trying to discipline their kids, and they just say fuck you, something, and then they go, you're wearing our father's shoes and shit. It's a great bit. Oh, also, I wish I had the balls and the artistic uh, and the artistry to do Cat Williams' opening 20 minutes on Jacksonville, specific to Jacksonville, in his uh, last special. That was, so many comedians I know we're talking about, it. that was uh, mind-blowing. It's all about Jacksonville. All about Jacksonville, a place he's not from. He was just no. doing a special there. Destroying. And it's funny because you know that they like it. Like, I was laughing the whole time, and I don't know anything about Jacksonville. It's amazing. It is, it is a, a feat. Neil Brennan and I use it now as a term for something that just is funny. Like, like don't overthink it as Jacksonville. Is there a comedian you wish you could sort of ride around in their head when they're performing? Like, like Quantum Leap or like John Malkovich, where they're doing a stand-up set and you get to experience it, but they're essentially performing. Oh, Brent Weinbach. Oh, interesting. Why? Yeah. I just want to know what he thinks it is. (laughs) So Diner Lobster, Bodega Bathroom, Airport, Sushi, is it a trilogy or do you feel like you'd keep going and are there other musicals you'd like to parody regardless of subject? Bro, I don't know if you watch SNL, but we don't do things more than three times. Uh, <laughs> we're not about just repeating things and having them get a little worse each time. My friend, <laughs> we're very interested in Sketch Legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to do one because they're so fun to do. They're so fun to do that I actually can put to rest the normal agonizing about is this good enough? And uh, I do think they're good, but I also am just letting you know that I'm not in turmoil during that. <laughs> uh, yes, I'd like to do another one. And we had one idea that we scrapped for airport sushi, and I'd like to do one at Quest. Mm. Um, and I want to say, I don't know if you knew this, but I was at the your first SNL taping. I was at the dress rehearsal. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, oh, I want to go to see what that's like. And then the moment when Keenan comes out as that lobster, I was like, I'm going to remember this feeling forever. That was um, 
watching the crowd, watching you guys watch that come out was just amazing. I was so myopically scared that I forgot how just impressive the pageantry of everything in that sketch was. That was so fun. That was so fun. Do you remember the last time you performed stand-up? Yes, I did a show in Fairfield, Connecticut. Oh, oh, really? I didn't. Yeah. I was not expecting you to be like, oh, was it outside? No, 1,000 people indoors. <laughs> um, but don't worry, I took precautions. I took their cell phones and put them in locking bags or whatever people do. Yeah, it was all outdoors. Oh, cool. Did you like doing outdoor comedy? Uh, Berbiglia and I both said it felt like giving a wedding toast. <laughs> but yes, I mean, that oddball tour, that Live Nation, yeah. big ups to Live Nation, <laughs> that they did. You know, that I think we all kind of got used to outdoor doing those the way like laughs kind of roll like waves. They go like, mm. and then come back. So you can go, okay, I'm not bombing. I'm just hearing the laugh differently. I did. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Do you have a comedy crush? What kind of crush? Like you are not romantic, but you have a crush on their comedy in a way that's comparable to a romantic crush in its intensity of feeling and its acute intensity of feeling. But ultimately it's about their, their comedy. Right. Sebastian Maniscalco mm. and Tim Key. What about them? Sebastian, it's less about wanting to be him because it's like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be Sammy Davis Jr. I want to watch him. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know how millennials say that. <laughs> yes. And with Sebastian, I don't want to be him because then I couldn't sit and watch him. I, I watch him every time I, he's at the store. I stay and watch his set and I've just never seen a funnier person. I've, I've seen people and comedians who seem to have his sensibility, background, voice, but then he is like none of them in many ways. Uh, Sebastian is like a tone you think you've heard, and then there are just layers and layers of specific singular weirdness. And he's hilarious. He's so, yeah. so, so funny. And he loves, my favorite thing about Sebastian, he has a few jokes about hating dancing, but he loves dancing, clearly. <laughs> and inside him is a dancer. Yes. He can and kick his legs so high, it makes me laugh so hard. And I want to say, like, I, I need to get Susan Sontag to write something on, like on broadness because I'm not, like, broadness, like, big performance is sometimes very, very, very funny. And I, I hope people will be more amenable to it. And who was the other person you mentioned? Tim Key is English or Great British. <laughs> uh, I saw him at, at the Melbourne Festival in Australia a decade ago because I had just started at SNL, 2009. And he did poems. And to tap his notebook, he had a conductor's baton and he had a guy sitting on the stage uh, beneath him holding a beer and every time he wanted a sip he'd go up up and the guy would hand it to him and his poems were so so funny and uh i can't convey his act but uh it, i went and saw it like every night there if you'll indulge cecily strong did it it took her 54 seconds which is the white house a, correspondent oh. yeah yeah as a person who uh worked at snl you have to tell the story of how you got a job there i assume every single day for the last 10 years can you tell the story of how you got a job writing for SNL as fast as possible? Yeah, Ayala Cohen Price saw me on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, so I was in the mix. But it was really from doing monologues at ASCAT when Amy and Seth were improvising. I did monologues one night, and I 
think they both thought I was funny, so they recommended me to Shoemaker and Lorne, and I got a studio audition. I found out on Tuesday that I was going to audition on Thursday. I didn't have time to learn characters or a Gordon Ramsay impression, so I went in and just did like my four minutes of best stand-up, and uh, they actually laughed, and I was psyched that they laughed. I knew I wasn't going to get it because there was already Hader and Forte and Fred and Andy and so many white guys, so I knew I wouldn't get it. And it was August 7th, 2008, same day that Bernie Brillstein passed away. And when I walked out, I thought, that was pretty cool. I actually did well in my SNL audition. Then two days later, Seth called me and said, we want you to be a writer. Just so I'm clear, you're not a cast member, you're a writer. And uh, I was a writer. <laughs> 50 seconds. Cool. Great. That's faster What's than Cecily. What's the record? So, well, it's, so far, you're the second person who did it, and you did faster than Cecily. So you, ha- you are the new record holder. Oh, that's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And that was great. Thank you, John. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch on Netflix. Follow John on Twitter, at Mulaney, and on Instagram, at John Mulaney. Good One is produced by myself, Delani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week on Monday, August 31st, with Dead to Me creator Liz Feldman. Have a good one.